Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this week, we are talking about blasts straight from the past that will not stay in the past. We're talking about games that we feel that that sort of craving for, that kind of siren call for, even if, you know, we're supposed to be playing things from like this decade or, you know, or, or this year or this week, you know, for our jobs, because we have uh, interesting jobs. So Rob, uh, I thought of this topic because I, I cannot put Bioshock down. The original really? Bioshock, the first game, and I'm and I cannot wait to play the second game. I'm gonna stop there because I don't I don't think I'm gonna play Infinite again. Maybe I will out of morbid curiosity, but like, oh my god, Rob, I can't stop playing. I just that's all I want to play. I have all these shiny new games and they're good and they're interesting, but like, I'm just like I gotta go back to Rapture. Gotta <laughs> I gotta so, go down so the bathosphere. What <laughs> set this off? Yeah, so. Robert Yang, uh, academic and awesome game designer, uh, he makes very gay games, things like The Tea Room and uh, the game about uh, men licking popsicles. Or is it eating hot dogs? I forget. Uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> he has been doing a series, and I think it's just about done now, or, or maybe it is completely done. But once a week, he has been streaming his series, which is called Level With Me. He has a, a background in level design and environment art and all that good stuff. Uh, and so he's played through the entire game of Bioshock with an eye, especially uh, for both level design and actually sort of the detail and the construction of the levels, the actual geometry, uh, objects, the way things are decorated, the way things are lit. Uh, so he's playing the game and he'll kind of do a combat encounter and then walk around the room and look at the room. And sometimes he will, you know, turn on wireframe mode and only look at at sort of, like, oh, the level geometry itself and what's built into the level and what's a prop. And other times he'll kind of uh, float around. He has like the, whatever the debug controls on. So he'll like float around and look at skyboxes from other angles and things like that. So I had been watching this for a couple of weeks and I just, (laughs) watching it and I'm like, I got to play this game again. I I just got to do it. I just got to jump back in and play this again uh, with both that kind of eye for how things are designed. And also just because I, I really like the game. I can't help it. I've I've played this game like ten times now, and I just I just really like it. It's fun. It's an immersive sim, even though it's definitely a lighter <coughs> immersive sim than you know, uh, take a drink, pray, for example, or any yeah. of the Dishonored games. It's much less simmy than those games, but it has those elements. It has enough to scratch my itch for. Hey, I'm going to play with all the plasmids I don't usually play with. So right now I'm using a ton of. Enrage and hypnotize Big Daddy. Uh, okay. So I am I am setting splicers against each other, and I am pretty much running around with a Big Daddy bodyguard uh, a lot of the time. And and not that I'm not shooting at all, but I'm not shooting as much because Daddy's taking care of it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I um I play that way with two a lot more, but two like definitely incentivizes and even makes it necessary yeah. to. Uh, use those systems to sort of accomplish your ends without burning through tons of like health and ammo. Um, but I know what you mean. Like Bioshock in particular, when I go back to play it, and I don't know if this is a quality intrinsic to the game or something that is produced by the nostalgia I have for the experience of playing Bioshock because it was an important game for me uh, at the time. But... Definitely going back to it always feels like comforting and warm and welcome in a way that I have a hard time putting my finger on. Like even the sound that the um, the audio logs make, uh, the sort of creak as the cassette spools up 
and yeah. the uh, the 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 hiss and pops uh, that are sort of laid over the recordings. Uh, all this stuff just feels right and good uh, in a way that like I just don't connect to a lot of elements in other games. Like everything in Bioshock, I have the sort of this condition response to be like, ah, this again. I missed it. Yeah. God, the sound design in that game, uh, it, it really is kind of amazing. Even the, even if um, you definitely see the seams uh, after you're playing it uh, a couple of times. I think if I was playing it for the very first time, I would be like, huh, this is interesting. This is an interesting piece of video game as theater uh, because, you know, some of it doesn't uh, hold up as well as it did in 2007. Uh, the You know, some of the big story beats are, are pretty obviously telegraphed at this point. And a lot of stuff is very very theatrical it very much feels like playing through set pieces now uh in a way that you know the the magic of playing it the first yeah, time kind of worked but <laughs> you yeah. put something on twitter the other day uh recording sander cohen's big reveal yeah uh at the end when you've done all the quests and he comes sort of uh sort of swanning down the grand waltzing staircase. down <laughs> yeah yeah and i remembered that as being cool as hell and cinematic as hell uh, and your video, I was like, well, I don't remember it. I sure don't remember it looking that way. Like, I remember it being over the top, but I don't remember it looking, like, absurd. And I yeah. don't remember his legs looking so obviously, like, mechanical and marionette-ish. Um, yeah. Like, those elements definitely haven't, uh, you know, aged tremendously well. And yet, at the same time, I'm still looking at it like, man, what a great scene. The, I know. His, his fucking lonely-ass party he throws for himself. Yeah. Yeah, it, it still works. Like, you you definitely have to suspend disbelief a little bit. You definitely have to look at it like, all right, you know, this is theater. This is staged. This is very obviously staged. Everything feels staged. It feels... Very much like, okay, you need to be in the magic circle to fully enjoy it. But if you can get yourself there, if you can put yourself in front of the spotlight and be like, here we go, I'm ready for some cornball-ass theater, then you can still have a, a blast and a half with Bioshock. Because it still, it still works. It still works, as long as you're willing to kind of put yourself there. I just did the, um, the Andrew Ryan assassination scene last yeah. night. Uh, and... It, it still works. Yes, of course it's over the top. It's like 10 miles in orbit over the top. Uh, but it's still powerful in a way. What's actually going on is still powerful. The subtext of it still works. The theatricality of it doesn't make it, I, I don't know. It, it's still well, sold, you know? They still sell it. Whether or not you kind of know what's going to happen, they still sell it pretty well. Well, it's a weird thing too, like... um there's just been this sort of cultural shift towards uh, really naturalistic styles of acting and presentation. Yeah. Um, that definitely makes it a lot more of a choice. Like, if you're going to be heavily stylized, that needs to be a clear choice telegraphed from the start. Otherwise, you get this sort of, like, you have this reaction, and I, I certainly do, where, like, something does feel over the top, and you feel the need to comment on it, right? Like, well, that's, you know, they're definitely overplaying that a bit. And it's weird when you go back to, like, like if you watch, like, old Olivier performances, right? Like, yeah. that, no, this was, like, this was completely valid, uh, and this is, to a degree, part of what you paid for. Uh, w you know, with with a great with with a great actor, uh, was somebody who would just you know 
chew up the scenery uh, and sort of heighten everything. And I think in video games in particular, um, there's a lot of reason to go with that sort of heightened presentation because games have a hard time carrying off the natural. Like yeah. when you when you're working in a medium that literally has not solved the problem of making a character picking up an object or taking a sip of water uh, look normal and natural, <laughs> when we still haven't <laughs> solved that problem, yeah. uh, then there's actually like some real good reasons to think about like. Well, maybe you just you just turn it up, and especially for games of that era when you already had, um, like, and I know there's a lot of things about the Unreal Engine that are not inherent to the Unreal Engine, but like in that era, uh, a lot of games ended up looking they had an Unreal Engine look, right? Yeah. And I don't know why that is, but uh, maybe because of some of the the sort of default configurations in the engine, uh, but when you're working with a medium like that, maybe the only way to go, maybe the only way to make those moments land, uh, especially when the story is basically non-interactive and you're just sort of watching as a spectator, is to have somebody go full uh, Wagnerian opera the way Andrew Ryan does. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it absolutely works. And it sort of works in the fiction as well uh, in terms of how much this is, it feels like a stage play and a radio play and a radio drama. Like so much of it is carried off by those, the grand sort of radio drama aspect of it, listening to the voice logs and listening to Atlas and Ryan sort of in your ear. And of course, Sander Cohen in your ear. I mean, my God, they should, they could have made the entire game about Sander Cohen and that would have. Well, it practically is a novella within the larger work, right? Yeah. Like, Fort Frolic basically doesn't link up to anything. He literally detours yeah. you from the main game in his shit show. Yeah. Uh, and it's completely, like, its own aesthetic, its own arc. It's totally different. Yeah. When I was watching uh, Robert Yang play it uh, with, with such an eye for, for the design elements, even things as subtle as... Uh, not not subtle. Okay, subtle is not the right word. <laughs> Even things as, um, you know, that I wouldn't have necessarily noticed. Like, when you're first walking down to the Batsphere, when you first get to Fort Frolic, and, you know, oh, you, all you gotta do is sort of bypass Fort Frolic and get to the next Batsphere. When Cohen takes over and kind of, you know, flushes the bathosphere and is like, oh, no, we're going to have an evening with Sandra Cohen. He actually puts up curtains, these, like, purple, velvety curtains, and there are bodies that are arranged like pole dancers. And this is sort of like, you, you kind of have to look at it to kind of see how ridiculous and obvious this is. But, you know, the first time I played the game, I was just like, oh, shit, this is what's going to happen. I guess I have to turn around and follow the arrow and do whatever I have to do. But if you stand there... There's glitter coming from the walls. There are these curtains, these velvety curtains. There are these pole, dead pole dancers sort of going up and down on the curtains. And it's this whole fucking thing. Every element of that level is its own thing. And it's incredible. It's really, really, really kind of amazing. And I was always one of those people who was like, yeah, Fort, Fort Frolic's great, but maybe it's not the best level in the game. Playing it again, I'm kind of like, oh, man, I don't know. I don't know if anything tops this actually really as as of playing it again. This is incredible. No, I don't I don't think anything comes close. Like <laughs> it it is uh it's it's the shit uh for yeah. me. Uh that very eloquent Rob. Well done. Well 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 put. Uh but <laughs> but like I, I think it 
because it's so self-contained and because it has such a strong central figure that the aesthetic is totally warped around. Yeah. uh, Fort Frolic feels satisfying in a way few other spaces in that game do. Like, um, I never cared for Hephaestus, uh, for instance. Yeah. Uh, It just felt, it just feels like an industrial interstitial area. Uh, that's between you and uh, Ryan. I think I think it's right before you meet Ryan. Yeah, right it is. After. Yeah. yeah. Um, the only I, I think maybe the uh, part that does work well for me is uh, later when you go to um, Neptune Square. Is that it? Uh, or yeah, Poseidon like the Olympus Square? Heights area ish. The apartments. Yeah, where, where the executions were happening and the riots. Yeah. Uh, like, but that feels like. They're building up Rapture as, oh, this is a city where people lived. Uh, but yes. but Fort Frolic is just this, um, that entire aesthetic of like, Sander Cohen was a middling workaday, like, show tune writer. <laughs> like, like, you know, that's kind of what his, his shtick was, right? Like, he was, he was mediocre Cole Porter. Um, and... Time was already passing him by by the time Rapture gets rolling, right? Like, Rapture's starting in, like, what, 1953? Something like that? Yeah, some somewhere thereabouts. Right. And, like, the type of music that, that he makes, the type of shows he puts on, it's already kind of, like, getting a little long in the tooth. And he just <laughs> keeps doing it again and again. And his reaction to all of this is basically to turn into um, Joker Liberace. <laughs> yep. Um, and like he's just just and and the fact that then he like he perfectly meshes with the medium of the video game. He just arranges these shitty tableaus and calls it art. And what do you know? That's that's exactly what a game is good at like showing, right? Yeah. Like there's that family frozen in whatever that whatever that like plastered goop is that he like schlacks everybody in. Yep. Uh yeah, there's so many of those. It's so good. God, yeah. And the way it's designed, like a casino and a mall and the, the, the sort of like cheap ass, gross, I don't know, like the, the, all of Fort Frolic is like this really cheap version of, of Disney World, like this very cheap version of Vegas or something that, that you know, he thought was, was this genius wonderland for his, for his beautiful art. And it's so gross and it works so perfectly and it's so purple and green and garish and my God... I just, oh, I just love it. Did you and put also, him down? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Did you put him down? No, because I want to hang out kill. with him in his apartment, which is where I am now. I think I just died in his apartment in uh, Olympus Heights or whatever. Oh, did the dancers get you? Uh, yeah, somebody got me. Somebody got me in there. Um, but I want to hang out with him. Because you get to see his bedroom. If, you, if right. you keep him alive, you get to see, like, his bedroom. And there's... I mean, like on a on a pure gameplay level, there's a power to the people station in there, I think. Uh, but which those are good because I'm I'm basically going for like every possible upgrade. Like I already have like every piece of atom you can have in the game because I'm playing with plasmids and I'm playing with uh, upgrades and I'm I'm having just a dandy ass time, uh, sort of testing the limits of the immersive sim elements of the game. I'm kind of seeing. Like I said, I'm not not shooting, but I'm really seeing how much I can get away with not shooting things and making other things shoot things. <laughs> how far are you able to get with that? Uh, pretty far, actually. I mean, like you still get shot a whole bunch, but again, if you if you got a daddy and you've got like security hacked, you know, hacked bots and all sorts of things, you can actually get pretty far. 
I'm also having a lot of fun with, uh, of, of course, with Cyclone Trap, which I don't think I ever used in any yeah, of my Yeah, I, I never really figured out how to use it. Yeah, you, you just create these, like, really stupid, cheesy traps, and they always run right into them, and then they jump into the air, and you can do all kinds of things with them when they're in the air, <laughs> which is fun. Uh, I used it a lot when I played Bioshock 2, believe it or not, uh, in the multiplayer game, which, again, this is, like, a weird and funny thing, but Bioshock 2's multiplayer is one of, like, two mm-hmm. or three online multiplayer shooters I've ever put more than, like, a couple of hours into. I loved the shit out of Bioshock 2's multiplayer because I would run around and I would find every little spare piece of Atom. And it was also levels from the first game. They actually just took levels from the first game. Uh, and so I could run around them and grab Atom and use, you know, weird powers on people. That was just so much more fun to me than sort of your average shooter. <laughs> but, you know, that's Yeah, me. I am... Um... So the other thing about like it all being heightened, I think this was one reason that this is something that worked against Bioshock 2. I remember when I wrote about it for um, Gamers with Jobs back in the day. Oh, yeah. My take on it was sort of that everyone was talking about how like Eleanor Lamb is no Andrew Ryan and <laughs> none of the characters really stack up to the to the first games. And I really don't think that's the point, right? Like, yeah. Bioshock 2, if Bioshock 1 is all like it's all Aeschylus, right? It's it's all like very heightened themes, uh people in dialogue with uh you know with the gods and with like uh you know core like lofty philosophical concepts and how ought we live and that kind of shit. Uh by contrast, like Bioshock 2 is edging more into like Euripides territory, right? Sure. Like it's it's much more about like small scale human motivations and frailties and weaknesses. It's much more psychological. Like everyone in Bioshock 2 is sort of a is someone who would have been a minor figure in Bioshock 1, right? Like they yeah. they, they wouldn't really have mattered that much in that society when it was dominated by uh, the Fontaines and the Ryans and the Tannenbaums. Uh, but in the second game, in the absence of these like strong characters, all these minor characters are starting to like manifest their own frailties and weaknesses and, and hopes and fears uh, on this much more like, you know, humble scale, yeah. uh, you know, an increasingly dysfunctional version of, of Rapture. And anyone who comes into it with like, at first, the game seems to be fainting towards this. Oh well, now, uh, now we learn that communism is also bad, right? That's that's how the game initially <laughs> approaches it. It's like, well, uh, Ryan was a radical, uh, like Randian free will uh, capitalist, and here comes Eleanor Lamb, who's a you know manipulative collectivist. Um, yeah. But that's not really what the game is about. Like that's kind of dispensed with early, and the rest of it is just kind of going through the game and exploring these um, sort of broken personalities uh, in a lot of ways, which I think makes it an outstanding sequel. Not only is it a great Bioshock game in its own right, but it actually makes for one hell of a good thematic follow-up to Bioshock 1. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, (laughs) I actually, uh, God, I haven't picked it up since 2010. 
Uh, and so I'm, I'm actually, one of the reasons I'm playing one right now is to actually go right into two and kind of be like, all right, this is the first time I've actually played one and two together. So I played two, I reviewed it for um, uh, your friend and mine, uh, Game Shark, <laughs> back in the oh, day. Oh man, pull yeah. one out. Eight years ago, I know. Um, so, so that was the last time I played the single player game and it's left such an impression on me that I, I love that game. I, I honestly like, I feel like I remember most of the choices I made. I remember going on kind of Adam hunts. I remember setting lots of traps. I remember it being more immersive simmy. And I remember it being a far more satisfying payoff at the end as well. That the ending actually kind of makes good on the choices that you make. Yes. In a simple way. I mean, I still don't think almost any game, I mean, all right, well, Prey did this pretty well, but whatever. It's almost Prey-like in that you, multiple choices that you make <laughs> matter on, on several levels. So it actually feels like a much better and more interesting sort of meditation on individual choice and free will and so on and so forth than the first game, which, you know, ended with like a pretty crappy binary um, based on how many little sisters you slaughtered as opposed to saved or whatever the term is. Which in itself wasn't even a satisfying binary, right? It was like, yeah, do you want to eat the children or like save them? And by the way, these (laughs) options are economically equivalent. Right. It was very, mm, you know, maybe that part doesn't age super well. But yeah, I I cannot wait to play two again. Uh, You know, the next hottness game, the hottest game of 2010 that I'm going to be playing next. Look, Real man, good. I'm still working through Dead Space. So Hell yeah! You got enough on me. Uh, but I think <laughs> something else that contributes to this impulse is we're talking about, like, the things you're noticing having gone back to Bioshock, and that's a game I've played uh, at least twice through all the way, and then yeah. parts of it multiple times. Um, and I think the other thing that makes it satisfying to go back to these things. It isn't just that these are these are beloved experiences or, uh, you know, that we're nostalgic for them, but you become, a keen, you become keenly aware of how much stuff you're missing on your first yeah. and even second readings of something. It's weird. Like, with a movie or even a lot of books, it's not that hard to go back in and revisit passages and watch certain scenes and start to really, like have those second and third order insights into, you know, the themes and technique of, uh, of a work with a game. That's much harder. Uh, and like a lot of times I come away from sort of my first take reaction to games, like, you know, the reviews I publish, the, the takes I have on them, shit like that as like, well, this is the best I can do right now. Like literally it like, (laughs) And like I stand behind it insofar as they are meant sincerely and they are, you know, as thorough as I can make them and I'm trying to sort of think beyond the, the surface with them. But I also know that in just two months, two weeks even, if I went back and revisited it again in a different context and with maybe a little more time to sort of, uh, you know, sink my, sink my fingers into something and start pulling it apart, uh, I would probably come away with a very different or at least a much deeper reading. Uh, and I think there's a desire to, it's satisfying to go back to something you know really well because you're still going to be getting new insights out of it. It's just going to be on a level that you never would have been able to access on your sort of first naive playthrough. Yeah. Yeah, God, I agree completely. Especially something as, uh, well... 
especially in an immersive sim that actually does sort of support multiple play yes. styles uh, so that you can you can actually play it a different way to some degree, to some degree. I mean, Bioshock was originally, I'm digging into some of the materials as well. I did, I'm playing the, whatever, the special edition that came out what last fall uh, that came with all three uh, games uh, and digging in a little bit to some of the sort of supporting materials and the extras that talk about things. And it, and it really was originally much more of an immersive sim. Uh, there was originally that the whole system where you were going to be able to change pressure in, in given rooms. And that was going to sort of affect how explosions worked and how electricity worked and how other systems kind of worked with each other. Uh, and so, man, I, w I would love to play that game one day. I mean, I know it's, it's, you know, got left on the cutting room floor, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder what it would look like now to some degree uh, with with the same vision, with the same sort of player experience goals, but with that extra weight of, of more and more systems. But of course, you know, me, that's what I'm going to want uh, <laughs> and not like, well, oh, a fresh new thing. <laughs> so, Yeah, and I've always sort of interpreted like just looking at the arc of um, well, like Bioshock and, and Irrational in particular. Yeah. In general, it's an arc away from the looking glass tradition. Right. Yes. Like if arcane are very self-consciously like trying to work within that um, Harvey Smith looking glass tradition uh, and trying to maybe evoke those games in a slightly more accessible package. Uh, although thief is super accessible. Uh, like there's, there's nothing. I should play there's... it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not like a system shock situation where like system shock, there are some serious interface hurdles that you've got to overcome uh, before you get to it, I have no idea how our uh, how our producer Natalie. Um, well, I do know how she got she got into it. Uh, she was she was ordered to by a professor, uh, which I imagine <laughs> <Right>. probably <laughs> in the same way we all learn to read at least a little bit of Chaucer. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess having somebody be like, "Do this, or you're going to you're going to flunk this midterm," uh, probably helps. But you can. Uh, like System Shock has those barriers, uh, Thief really doesn't. But overall, Bioshock, uh, Irrational, I feel like the arc there is strip away more, like strip away more and more of the experience uh, to make it uh, maybe a little smoother and a little more accessible. Uh, sand the rough edges off of uh, System Shock Two, and and you get Bioshock. Uh, and then with Bioshock Infinite, I think you just have a case where you end up probably going too far, uh, right? Where it becomes yeah. Uh, an experience that it becomes a game that is so uh, ambitious with regards to like the cinematic experience and, and the, the shots it wants to create and evoke uh, that yeah. you basically don't even have a shadow of the earlier games in it. Yeah. It, that was pretty much a shooter um, that had a little bit of stuff around the edges. God, the, the original conception for that skyline system sure was kind of amazing. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the... What does that game look like if they'd been able to make that smooth and intuitive and fun? Yeah. Because <laughs> the impression I got from, like, Kirk Hamilton's reporting at Kotaku when he was talking about... Uh, you know, he writes the story that a lot of, uh, you know, long in development... Uh, games from high pressure studios eventually have a version of the story written uh you know dysfunction uh within and it was the sort of dysfunction uh within the rational story um but he sort of you know one of the things that his sources were pointing the finger at was like the skyline system just didn't work 
and uh, yeah. you had months and months of development being hurled at solving something that just, no matter what people did, wasn't fun for most people. Um, yeah. And yet, I'm still like, but maybe if you just put a few more months into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, we obviously <laughs> both know a lot of people who worked on that game and know a lot of stories uh, about what went down in that studio. So I guess uh, disclaimers, wherever you need to paper over things uh, with. But Yeah, but on this one, I don't know shit. Like, this is, this is something I, I have no visibility into. This is just like... Because uh, all my friends didn't really work on, didn't really work much on a lot of the gameplay systems. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, I uh, I don't know. There's still part of me that's like, I would have really loved that, um, you know, Dance Between the Skylines game. Uh, it would have been cool. <laughs> I think, I mean, for that matter, I think a lot of people at Irrational would have loved it, but, you know, yeah. didn't work. Um, yeah, yeah, so, go on. Oh, no, no, I, I you know. I just I just always want to pour one out for everybody who worked on that game. That is honestly my instinct at all times. Uh, and also, I, I I should probably say I don't like that game very much. Um, I think it had a lot of promise and the, you know, the kind of false equivalency centrism that it, it purports really sure wasn't great in 2013. I suspect, you know, looking back at it five years later, it's been five years now as of this month, actually, which is, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I just suspect uh, if I were to go in and play it again, it would would have aged even more poorly, uh, given kind of what's happened in the last five years in the world. But I, I also very much, man, I, I hope somebody writes a fucking book one day about just what happened, uh, like an yeah. actual a- accounting of what happened uh, with that game and, and its development. So, yeah, sorry. Anyway. We, we can move on. <laughs> yeah. um, so as far as like things that I've been uh, sort of like, cause I am in the middle of, um, oh, there's so many games I want to go back and, uh, yeah. and, and replay. Like, I mean, last year I was playing a ton of myth uh, and I would like to yeah. finish my playthrough of, of the myth games. Uh, we did a great podcast on it for three moves ahead. And uh, nice. Adam Smith from rock, paper, shotgun was on that one and had a lot of, angles on the game that I hadn't really considered before. Um, And it's so satisfying to sort of go back to these works. And and in a lot of cases, like a lot of these games that really like stick in our memory, uh, one reason for that is because like they haven't really been replaced. Yes. Um, Like they're not, they're like, they have influence but it's not like you can go to like if you like a lot of the um if you like Medal of Honor Airborne Assault the rest of the Call of Duty series is basically there to sort of uh <laughs> you know take you in hand uh you know if you if you like uh, a lot of older RPGs um you've still you've still got that need being serviced uh maybe not by Bethesda as much anymore but you can, you know, you can still go and play Fallout New Vegas, or you can play, um, you know, some of the newer stuff like, uh, you know, Tides of Numenara, mm-hmm. or, um, or Divinity Original Sin Two. Um, but if you love something uh, like a myth or uh, something that's been on my mind a lot, I'm working on a piece about it uh, for Waypoint right now. Is uh, Warcraft Three? 
Uh, it's yeah. it's been nagging at me basically ever since I had a throwaway reference to a certain level uh, in that game <laughs> uh, about in a piece about their billions. Like it was really just a one one paragraph throwaway remark. Um, now it's sort of blown out into a fifteen hundred word essay. <laughs> uh, but but sort of my point there is that like you can't. You you can't even recreate. You can't get another like Warcraft three type game because like the entire circumstances of its creation can't be repeated. You can't go yeah. back and like make Blizzard an RTS company again. That's never going to happen. They are never going to be an RTS first studio. Uh, Warcraft three kind of set the stage for World of Warcraft, which was going to end that party uh, once and for all. Uh, and furthermore, like Warcraft three contained within it sort of the framework for a lot of uh, MOBA games and it would be modders who sort of took that and ran with it uh, but again like once that happened a lot of people who used to play a lot of RTSs stopped playing RTSs um, so it's like you can go back to these sort of great works that are produced from bygone eras and games uh, but that confluence of technology and circumstances and marketplace and talent is not going to be repeated. And so, you know, the the thing you've got in your collection somewhere is all you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. God. I, I feel like... I, I'm not going to talk about Prey again. <laughs> but... Mm-hmm. Prey is definitely, I think, the only thing that has fully scratched the Bioshock itch, and and I and I do think it's actually uh, a fair deal better than than Bioshock, but it should be since it's ten years you know, mm. older, um, or ten years later, and uh, going off of those traditions. But I, that's honestly the only example I can think of that actually is like, you know what? I was looking for this itch to scratch. Oh my god, this actually did it better. Um, it's it's exceedingly rare, and it's fucking sad because of course we're not gonna get another one <laughs> unless uh you know a, a magical billionaire uh you know decides to fund a game like that millionaire i guess it's probably not billionaire but like i guess if you're a billionaire that then that's uh you know as far down the list you can go is like oh you know these other projects for the humanities and also hey how about a great immersive sim in this tradition <laughs> um so yeah You think, uh, I mean, you view Prey and Bioshock as being, um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like you, you find that Prey, that Prey is scratching that Bioshock itch? Yeah, but better. Hmm. Just because Uh, it's like, what if Bioshock were proper immersive sim? Yes. In a lot Mm. of ways. Yes. Very much so. Even, even in terms of kind of what it's doing with the story with the like, you know, it's, it's a little over the top. It's a little bit theatrical. It's a little bit, oh, what mind fuck do we have going on here? Um, but of course in space and with space lesbians and with genuine, like genuine immersive, uh, sim systems and the ability to play like a thousand different ways. Oh God. I, I'm worried. I'm going to play prey again. I'm worried. I'm worried that I'm going to do like a third fucking playthrough of that game within a year, which is bananas, nutso, cuckoo. And I probably shouldn't do that. I should play at least, I should at least go back and play other games I've played five times, right? Instead. Yeah. I, it's just almost like, 
Uh, you're making me feel better because you're making me feel as if there are good and logical and sane reasons to want to go back to things that, that kind of do it for you. And, well, uh, you know, chief among them that, yes, you are going to read different things and you are going to see different things and have a new level of insight. I was actually like a little bit, I actually felt like a little bit bad. <laughs> like this weekend being like, oh, you know, there's like three new games I want to check out, but fuck it. And my cat sat on my lap and I played a lot of Bioshock and it was just the best. It sounds like heaven. <laughs> it was so good. Or he was just like drooling in my lap and adorable. And I was like, look, Ori, this is Sander Cohen. It's a great cat right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, like, so toward the end of um, a previous position uh, that I held, I was working for a... Uh, for a really terrific guy, um, just like may, maybe still like my ideal boss, like who I who I would most like to be, uh, were I like running running my own ship. But yeah. um, one of the things that he was always really adamant about uh, with his team is that he was like all about telling people to sort of fuck off and pursue their passions and do the thing that was like actually of interest to them uh, at that moment. And he was like, as long as your shit's getting done, I don't give a shit. Like just, uh, and the way he put it though was he was like, you always got to be getting back in touch with that thing that sparked the passion that brought you to this place. And if yeah. you ever lose contact with that, then that's a crisis for me as your manager. Like that, that's, that's, that's gonna, that's gonna impact your ability to give a shit about what it is we do. And so you've always got to you've always got to take that time. You should never feel guilty for it. Uh, you know, investing yeah. a little bit of yourself in sort of reconnecting with your uh, with your with your passions. And to me, that means like, yeah, play on, like Hell drink yeah. deeply. <laughs> Deep from drink from Atlas as well today. Just yeah. fucking do it. Yeah. You know what? I like that. I like that a lot. I like that message and I like that dude. I'm I'm into that a hundred percent. Thank you, Rob. You know, I don't weekend is therapy for me, I guess. So uh <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> Are there any other older uh games or experiences you wanted to chat about or, or shall we go into our weekend correspondence? Uh we should we should get into the uh get into the correspondence. All right, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take this letter. Uh, from my bathosphere mailbox uh, right here. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, take Pneumatic a gloved too. hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. From my pneumo right here. All right. This letter, uh, let me look down here, comes from Christian. All right. Cool. Hello, Christian. <clears throat> Christian writes, Hey, Weekend. I was listening to your talk about crunch and labor practices in the games industry in the last episode, and I have to disagree with your criticism of coverage that frames crunch as inefficient and impractical when the argument should be a moral one. Clearly, we agree these practices are repugnant. However, I think your take condemning the crunch doesn't work angle is really counterproductive for two reasons. One, unfortunately, we live in a society, Americans especially, it seems, where businesses do not listen to moral arguments. They listen to business arguments and laws. So unless your government can be moved to enact legislation barring these insane practices, I'm not holding my breath, the only effective argument is a practical one. Two, you are mistaken. The fact that many companies still get away with these practices does not make them actually efficient or, quote, good business. <clears throat> Excuse me, good business. I kind of made that a business there. Excuse me. 
Grinding up people for profit is not a sustainable enterprise. There is a century of research and more data every day that have shown again and again long hours and poor working conditions are as unsustainable and unproductive as they are unhealthy. The sheer amount of institutional knowledge alone thrown away by the exodus of experience, talented people burned out or fed up with the industry is immeasurable. Never mind all the projects that crashed and burned or came out half-baked because devs were too overworked to pull it together. Denying this is like denying climate change. Just because some keep doing it doesn't make it any less fatally misguided. We need every tool we can to stop these practices, and that includes practical arguments to get through to those without empathy, excuse me, empathy or decency, because apparently many of them are running companies. Uh, see this for some research, and there's a link uh, to a Gama Sutra piece, uh, Game Outcomes Project Part 4, Crunch makes games worse. In the meantime, the game industry should probably unionize. Christian. Couldn't agree with you more there, Christian. I want the game industry to unionize, and I, I want more people in general in America and everywhere to have union protections. Being in a union and being the reunion rep for Waypoint has been wonderful for me and actually, like, really eye-opening in terms of, oh, hey, unions are fucking awesome. Of course, of, of course, with any institution, with any anything, there can always be problems, yes, but... In general, people having more labor protections is a wonderful thing, something we should strive for. And I, uh, I understand making this sort of business argument uh, sucks and is hard, but I don't know. I um, so I think I'm the one who's going on here. So yeah, go ahead on this one, because uh, sure. like, or at least okay. So what I remember, and I think we're now like a, a month or two away from when we okay. had this conversation. Yeah. Uh, but first of all, the research that uh, Christian shared is awesome. Like, if you uh, if you have a few minutes, like you should go check out uh, the Gamma Sutra article, uh, Game Outcomes Project: uh, Crunch Makes Gamma's Worse. Uh, look that up. Uh, it is uh, really valuable and actually documents and measures a lot more than I've ever seen uh, in, in one source uh, within the games industry. So, like, it is an important study and uh, definitely caused me to reevaluate my statements. Cause like part of my feeling was that when we tend to put things in terms of practicality or what is effective, when we're just speaking the language of the people whose interests uh, abusive practices already serve, uh, mm -hmm. I kind of feel that just has a destructive rhetorical impact because we start talking about needing to prove the importance or value of sort of rights or just treatment uh, as they apply to the people perpetuating that kind of uh, abuse and exploitation, right? It's, yeah. like, it's the entire like uh, diverse teams are more profitable uh, kind of <laughs> argument for, uh, you know, addressing hiring uh, imbalance uh, across a lot of industries and pay imbalances across a lot of industries. Like, I don't think, I think it is in some small way self-defeating to be saying things like, you know, diverse hiring makes for more profitable companies. Like, I think that's kind of a sucker's game. Uh, yeah. But the other thing specifically in this case is I'm not 100% sure that crunch making games worse and being bad for the business of a game company necessarily makes it bad business for the people running game companies. Um, and my point here is that, especially when you're talking about publicly traded companies, right? Um, 
you've got shareholder value theory guiding a lot of the decision making of corporate officers and certainly guiding uh, the thinking behind like boards of directors. Um, and the nature of that interest, this idea that uh, delivering value to shareholders uh, is sort of the prime directive of a corporation, um, I think sort of divorces the core sustainable health of a business from the choices that business will then make, right? Like mm -hmm. if, if for the most part your time horizon is quarter to quarter, um, it becomes a lot easier to chew up teams and people and yeah, maybe even waste a lot of money in the long run. Um, you know, churn, like having this kind of churn, having this kind of bad project management and letting these practices sort of uh, fester and thrive. But at the same time, to the people who are sort of, you know, taking their stock windfalls, cashing dividend checks or, you know, sell or, or selling their shares uh, at the end of a, at the end of a good year, um, those costs are passed on and borne by other people. Right. But in the meantime, uh, it's probably still profitable to them and their interests to not give a shit about whether or not uh, teams are being well cared for and being effective with the resources given on a macro scale. Like that's that's like that, that's kind of where I'm at with all this. Right. It's, it's yeah. like I think there's a lot of choices you see in corporate America. Uh, not just corporate America, corporate life anywhere. Yeah, that wouldn't be made if like the health of the core business was the prime concern, but make a hell of a lot more sense if you view the audience for a lot of these decisions not being the company or the people who work there, uh, but the people who have briefly invested in it. That does make sense. I certainly have uh. A, a child's understanding uh for a lot of economic theory so that yeah. does sound that that tracks for me short-sightedness being <laughs> a major toxic element in uh corporate structure sure tracks with what i understand of the world so. what uh oh god let me let me see <laughs> i'm looking up uh i think it was an ajp taylor uh, quote, but um, so like basically his response to there was a trend I think around like Second War and post post war historiography, uh, to sort of create the picture that like well actually none of the empires of the nineteenth and early twentieth century uh, were profitable and actually like uh, the you know the wealth of colonies wasn't really. Uh, a real thing and and wasn't therefore a motivating factor in a lot of uh you know nationalist decision national decision making and uh, i think i think it was taylor uh his response to that was well it was profitable to colonialists uh, <laughs> which, which i think actually sort of hits the nail on the head is, is, yeah. is sort of where i come down on a lot of this right like yeah overall maybe if you look at the big picture these things were not good they were good for someone right or else they wouldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Our next uh, 
Our next email comes from uh, John Rennish. And he writes, One of the bigger shifts in games in the last few years has been a push for more live titles, a combination of longer early access periods, stronger mod support, extended DLC, and even ports, especially Switch. Have there been any notable highs or lows with games given new life long after their release? When a mod for a game is better than the base experience, does that add complications as a critic? I uh, I don't tend to play a lot of games that have a ton of this going on. I, I guess other than DLC, uh, for sure. Um, maybe one good example of this would be Don't Starve, which I really, really enjoyed as yeah. a base game and then played uh, several versions of it later. I, I haven't picked it up in a while, certainly, uh, but there was Don't Starve Together. There was a sort of giant expansion that had caves in it that was really cool. There was a huge expansion that added uh, a lot more sort of like seafaring. I think you could kind of sail away to other islands, uh, other things like that. And I just really, really liked that game. I thought it was a really, really cool survival game. Uh, so that is that is one of the few examples that I can think of that was like actually a really great bright spot. There was a lot of cool stuff going on and they were constantly expanding that game uh, in ways that made sense for the game and that were fun for me to kind of play with. Um, God, other than that, uh, I'm probably a bad person to ask because I, you know, I, I'm still playing fucking Bioshock, so you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I look. I mean, I am too, but I think this is um, this is a tough thing because I think this is actually, if there's any place where I feel like I completely f- to fail to grok this uh, as as mm-hmm. a critic, uh, as uh, you know, a a games journalist or whatever. Um, it's games like this because with very few exceptions, uh, and I'm not sure there are any real exceptions uh, that exist right now. Um, PUBG maybe mm-hmm. is, 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 is such a case, but like it is hard. It is, it is both hard as an individual to follow the development of these communities closely uh, and the development of these games uh, closely. Um, unless you are super invested in the game itself, right? Like these are conversations and evolutions that the hardcore fans like totally follow along with and get. And everyone else, uh, even people who were into the game at one point but sort of fell off, uh, are really kind of on the outside looking in. Uh, And I don't think there's a ton of websites or, or, or or games outlets that have really hacked this problem. I'm happy to be proven wrong. Uh, if you if you see great ongoing coverage of um, sort of live titles, as as Renish puts it, uh, you know, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to see how it's done. Uh, but I do know that, like, in terms of the knowledge level that it takes to speak in a way that adds value to the communities uh, that that sort of follow these games. Um, and the amount of time you have to invest in doing that, and then the audience for such coverage, um, it becomes a really daunting prospect to put in that time. Um, yeah. But there are games that, like, I mean, like, look at Warframe, right? Like, yeah, that's did, a great example, actually. <laughs> yeah. When did Warframe become huge? I don't no like. Idea. I literally don't know when this happened. I don't know when the tipping point happened. I remember when Warframe came out. Nobody gave a shit. It was. Yeah, like, I reviewed it actually. Like I reviewed it at Polygon, and it wasn't great. I and mean, it was five years ago. It was. It was like early, very early 2013, even. And I was like, it's a shooter. <laughs> so 
Yeah. Yeah. And here we are, uh, where like Warframe is, uh, you know, they have a conference. <laughs> yeah. Like they have for like three years now or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's daunting to follow this stuff and it tends not to be, uh, something that, that I follow along too closely. Like are there games that, uh, I mean, I, I guess the best I can think of is sort of like the Grand Theft Auto online coverage that Kotaku does sometimes. They they really do have some fascinating stories that come out of that community. Like the people who race cars and they have specific car clubs and, and, and all kinds of things. Like I remember reading something like that recently where that was pretty cool, I guess. Um I can't think of much else beyond that. Also, because that would have uh, that would interest me. It's it's not a game that I'm playing. Things need to have that sort of crossover appeal for me to be interested in it as well. So, that's a complicating element as well, I guess. Yeah, as far as games that I've I've followed closely, um, there aren't that many that that sort of meet this criteria. Like for a while, I was super into War Thunder. Fell off that. Um, I guess like the division is something I keep returning to uh, mm-hmm. again and again. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, with the, you know, they added a survival mode that was really interesting. Um, that becomes something to revisit. Um, when a mod for a game is better than the base experience, uh, <laughs> arguably like the long war for XCOM as, as Ranish puts it, um, that's super interesting. It's, not something that I can really do a super good job of following. Uh, but I do think that's also one reason why like defense of the ancients kind of caught people by surprise. Uh, yeah. You know, the rise of the MOBA, I think kind of was missed by a lot of uh, games criticism until it was already an accomplished fact uh, because yeah. we tended to think about like, well, what's the new hotness? I'll review this new RTS coming out from Petroglyph or whoever. Uh, yeah. When really all that stuff was kind of behind the times, and the real action was happening on a uh, Warcraft three, uh, yeah. Warcraft three matchmaking somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I don't know if it's just the type of player I am, but I guess I'm I'm also just not great at uh at looking at trends um in, in general. So God, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that one. Um. <clears throat> But I suppose it's time for us to uh, to talk about weekend projects. So, Rob, is there something you are particularly enjoying lately? Uh, yeah, I've been really into. Uh, I've been rewatching with my partner uh, a show called The Hour. Oh, um, which is a British mystery miniseries uh, that, like, you can definitely tell the pitch was like uh, the newsroom meets Mad Men. Uh, like meets John Lacar, basically. Um, but it works. It's got a really good cast. Um, and it's about sort of, you know, sexy British, uh, you know, news hounds in like 1950s Britain, uh, sort of stumbling on a massive conspiracy surrounding the Suez crisis. Uh, but in the meantime, also trying to put a first-of-its-kind uh, sort of TV magazine 
on the air on the BBC uh, once every week. And so there's lots of like office politics. Uh, there's lots of like intrigue. And then there's also just, um, and this is kind of what hooks me about the show. It is an abominable cast of characters in many ways. <laughs> like the hero is the quintessential like negging nice guy uh, constantly like belittling uh, the far more successful woman who's on the rise uh, and and leaving him behind and just being like aggressively shitty to her because he's in love with her and because he oh, resents man. the shit out of her ability to navigate waters where he drowns. Yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, she is also a disaster zone uh, in some ways. Uh, like tends to like completely immolate her public life in in sort of in public in ways visible to her uh you know employers um Ugh. there's but a lot of it is tied to uh she's she is sexually promiscuous she likes to have uh a lot of uh, a lot of sex and a lot of affairs um and she's yeah. keenly aware of the injustice that like she gets dragged for it and Nobody else, like, you know, her male partners never bear consequences for it. Um, and then, like, you know, the uh, sort of the news anchor is this, like, aggressively vain uh, sort of empty suit kind of guy. Uh, went to the best schools and has basically done fuck all with his life in a lot of ways. And all these characters <laughs> are unbearable in some ways. Yeah. But they all actually do, like become a weird, good, happy family in some ways. And there are things <laughs> redeeming about all of them that makes you understand why these people are friends. And even over the course of, this, over the, course of the series, they start to grow out of this shit uh, a little bit. Uh, they, they, they do start to wake up to the ways in which they're sabotaging themselves and the ways they're being shitty to each other. Uh, and it's just a really fun series uh, to watch from from that standpoint as well. But I don't want to oversell that. Like, <laughs> definitely, the show probably still lets its uh, passive aggressive hero a little too off the hook. Like he has to reckon mm. with some shit. He probably gets to let slide a little more than he should. Um, but even that having been said. Um, it is just a slick enough, uh, well-produced and well-written enough ride uh, that you just don't worry too much about the seams. <laughs> yeah. God. Mm. I, I would probably watch it and be infuriated and also enjoy it. So it sounds... <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> sounds about dude, right. hundred percent. hundred percent. Like, if you can make it past the first... Because the first episode is the really bad one. The first episode is like holy shit, this guy is toxic. Girl, you need to get this guy out of your fucking life. Um, <laughs> Good. And it gets better from there. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah. All right. I'm, yes. I'll probably watch it. I will probably watch it. I uh, I watched something that resonates with that somewhat, uh, although it's it's a very different uh, general topic. I watched, I binged, I watched all of Mindhunter in like two days. <laughs> something like that. And legitimately did the double take when it was done that was like wait wh where's the next episode <laughs> i had like a minor freak out like what come on um so mind hunter 
new-ish Netflix series about uh, set in the late seventies about the the it's it's sort of a you know based on true events type of deal uh, based on the beginning of the behavioral science unit at the FBI the you know, psychological profiling especially of killers and uh, you know violent crimes uh, done in sequence they actually call them sequence killers at first it's very interesting uh, loved it uh, of course I did I I don't know why but I love kind of like serial killer you know, psychological profiling, the entire genre, the whole genre of like serial killer fiction and, and sort of the way the mind works and the way that the criminal mind works and so on and so forth. I don't know why, but I love it. I eat it up like candy and then I wonder what the hell is wrong with me. Um, but this is a very interesting and uh, much more sort of clinically presented. Not It's not clinical in a boring sense, but in a uh, sort of a somewhat more methodical sense because uh, it's based on the the sort of two agents who actually start interviewing serial killers to understand what the hell is going on in their heads. And uh, Anna Torv plays Dr. Wendy Carr, uh, who is actually a, a criminal psychologist who kind of came on board and helped them make their research real research, as opposed to just interviewing these guys and having, you know, intuiting uh, facts about their minds. Uh, she actually steered them in the direction to make it a real study uh, that had actual real sort of scientific merits. Uh, the main character, uh, Holden Ford, uh, is played by Jonathan Groff. He has, like, the charisma of, like, a, this moldy cracker. Basically, he is just, like, the most boring dude in a suit. Uh, he, he has this awesome girlfriend who's a sociologist uh, who's, like, getting her PhD, and she's kind of a free spirit, and I have no idea what the hell she sees in him, but it's fine. He, he gets a lot of insight from her, I suppose. Um, <laughs> she's, she's great, uh, in the show. And then there's Holden, uh, not Holden, sorry, uh, Bill Tench is a sort of cop-ass cop who goes along with him and starts to see sort of the value in what he's doing. Uh, so there's this, it's sort of like three main characters, I guess, although Holden is, is really treated as Good the protagonist. Time. Uh, and there are a lot of really wonderful scenes, um, where the two, the two, you know, the two bros go into a jail and they're interviewing a serial killer, especially there are a few sort of main killers, uh, including uh, Edmund, uh, what, is, what is his name? Ed something, I, I forget, but, but he's, he's this menacing figure. He's like 6'8", huge dude who just has this very polite air about him. And he, and he speaks so articulately about his feelings and about his, uh, his crimes and, and what he was feeling at the time. They get a lot of insight from him. But it's also this really chilling and sort of clinical look at what it was to to dive into the mind of, of a killer like this. And my God, I, I just ate it up like candy. A beautifully produced show as well. Uh, and, and God, scary at times how much it nor not normalizes because the show is not taking a stand on, on sort of normalizing the behavior. But some of the conversations to, to sort of develop a rapport with the, the killer in question uh, they just they just say some nasty shit, and then it's almost like a normalizing thing. Like they'll they'll be like bros having beers, talking about how you buried the the women in the yard. It's this incredibly uh, chilling, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this sounds like my shit. Oh my god, Rob! I think you'll love it. Like, okay, so <laughs> let me ask you this. Yeah. Um, are you like? Is this going to give me my Fincher fix? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, it will. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's almost yeah. no gore, though, which is interesting. I mean, you will see, like, some uh, sort of incidental things in a crime scene here and there, but it's it's not a gory kind of Fincher thing. It's not like 
stylistically looking at the violence. It's, it's not the Hannibal thing either. It doesn't yeah. go into that like, you know, Sander Cohen kind of world, right? But is or anything it a, like that. more of a Zodiac kind of thing? Much more so, yes. Hell the puzzle, yes. it is all about the puzzle of the mind. Oh my you God, know, you're, figuring just, that you're out. speaking my language. Like, and wearing skinny ties in the 70s and having a briefcase. And Oh yeah, oh yeah. God, are, there, mm-hmm. are there like menacing cities at night? <laughs> There's plenty of that, yes. Awesome. It is not it is not as much focused on that for sure. Like yeah. it's not quite as obsessed with the window dressing as as um, you know other other Fincher works are. Uh, but it, there there is enough of that that I think you will I think you'll appreciate it. I sure. Yeah, do. I mean, like you know, you you heard me and Dia talking about it the other week. Like I'm yeah. always here for a good. Uh, we must go inside the mind of the killer. But oh, maybe we're going to stare thing. too deeply into the abyss. <laughs> that is this whole thing. It is all about the balance between staring too deeply into the abyss and then categorizing the abyss. God, <laughs> like yes. sometimes literally that is what they will do. They will be like, all right, let's categorize <laughs> these killers. Organized or disorganized, you know, passionate or, or dispassionate. Like they, they're creating categories of these heinous things and it's fascinating. Oh my God, it's fascinating. Oh. Okay, I'm I am way the fuck in. Yeah. All right. I'll I let think you, know you how need it to goes. watch it. I think you need to watch it, and then we should we should talk again. <laughs> All right. Cool. Um, I, I have more thoughts on Mindhunter, but I would I would love to, sh- to like share them once you've seen it for sure. And I and I feel like I feel confident in this. I feel confident in this one. Yeah. Now I'm chomping uh, at the bit. Like. Oh yeah. Because uh, you're like I, already watching it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah pretty much. I've got, I've got it open now. Uh, with, with <laughs> Perfect. <captions>. No. <laughs> Perfect. I I think that's a that's a very good note for us to uh, head out and enjoy our weekends on. So this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net to keep up with the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And of course, we would appreciate it if you would tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your pen pals uh, who may be incarcerated for serial killing. Uh, tell anybody, really, that you think might enjoy the show about us, because it really does help us out. And uh, also, if you if you wouldn't mind uh, sending us a little review on iTunes, that'd help us out, too. Point of really order. do appreciate it. Oh, what's that? Don't tell your serial killer friends about no, don't. our show. Like, you, like, if you have one, have them, or like, <laughs> if you have that one friend that like you think... like. If it came to pass, came to light one day that like that friend was a serial killer, you would not yeah. really be surprised. Don't tell that friend either. Uh, like that, yeah. you, this can just be between us. <laughs> Number one podcast for serial killers, Idle Weekends. You know, I I don't know if I want that one. I don't know if I want that one. That's not a yeah, yeah. Okay, everybody but them. Everybody. <laughs> Is but there them, any please. more viscera in the weekend correspondence file? <laughs> Like, please, what did you do with the disembodied foot? <laughs> what did you do next? No! Oh my god. Oh, watch mine, Hunter. That's it. <laughs> so for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. <laughs>